Hey, welcome back to Revival on the Air today. It's been here, and I have to apologize that we haven't released too many episodes lately, but that's because we've been recording the more than 60 years of stories from Pastor Jock and Helen Duncan, founding members of the Revival Fellowship and just have an amazing life serving the Lord. So stay tuned. This will be part one in a multi-part series. Enjoy. Welcome, Pastor Jock and Helen, to the Revival on the Air Today podcast. Thank Thank you. you. This is our second go at it because I just messed the recording up on the first go. (laughs) (laughs) So we missed the last 10 minutes, so we'll Mm -hmm. cover that off again. Mm -hmm. We're in our outdoor recording studio, so there's lots of birds and lovely noises out here. Hopefully not too many whippersnippers. (laughs) So you've got a lot to tell us, both of you. You've uh, had a long and illustrious uh, journey with God over over many, many years. Mm. Um, it really starts with you, though, doesn't it, Helen? Mm, yes, yes, it does. Right back in uh, 1956, I actually heard the truth. Um, I had had a, uh, a journey before then where I was uh, typical of my generation. We were sent to Sunday school. I don't think that sort of thing happens much these days. And... Uh, I think probably my parents uh, hoped that we would find something because they had not. And um, so I guess I was a good little little Methodist girl in those days and um, I remember seeing a picture of Jesus up on the wall in the Sunday school in the, Mel- uh, the Methodist church in Melbourne where we were and uh, saw the... Um, people around Jesus of all different nationalities and I felt that I would like to know that that Jesus. I certainly didn't know him at that time. A short time after that, um, my father had to sell the farm, sell the sell the property we were on in, in uh, Melbourne and move to a farm at Bowen Heads. The reason was that the doctors had said to him um, his uh, asthma would kill him because of the pollution in Melbourne in those days. And so we went to a place at Bowen Heads and uh, there we uh, went off to the local church, Lorraine and I. We went to the Anglican church and in those days going to church was a thing that farmers did and then they could talk about the weather and the crops and the sheep afterwards. It was a social thing and I can remember... um, some some of the local people invited Janet to go along to the Congregational Church, which was up the road in Connawari. And Janet said to my mum, I'm not going. I haven't got a hat to wear. And my mother <laughs> presented her with a hat and Janet took it off and jumped on it. <laughs> there was no way she was going to go to this church because uh, she had actually given up on the church uh, in Melbourne where we were because she had invited all the young people from the migrant hostels along and when she got them there, those young people had been snubbed Mm. and Janet was not impressed. She said, if this is your Christianity, you can keep it. Mm. I'm not coming back. And so she read her Bible. And uh, then, of course, when we went to Bowen Heads, a couple of, of years later when my dad went to borrow the uh, horse and plough from the neighbours and got invited to a, um, a house meeting at their place and Dad said, I'll send the girls. 
And so um, this was a church sort of house gathering. Yes, that's yep. right. It, it was a house meeting. The assembly was in Geelong and there were regional house meetings and huge revival in, around Geelong at that time, particularly in our area, a farming area. So, and so your dad chickened out in going and sent the three girls to, to suss out what it was all about. He, he sure did. <laughs> he was a very sceptical Scot, you know. Actually, he'd been in Darwin uh, after it was bombed in the Air Force and he had seen uh, religious leaders, I won't name any, who uh, drank and swore actually worse than he did. So he was very sceptical of anybody associated with religion yeah, right. at all. And he, was, he wasn't going to be tricked. <laughs> Fair enough too, I say. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So he sat back really and watched what happened to us. And uh, after Janet went to this first meeting, uh, she heard how she could be healed. She was healed of her eczema and her partly deaf ear. And I know all that's in her testimony, so I won't go into it. As I mentioned to you before, uh, we always felt like we lived in a really dark house. Well, we did. We didn't have electricity. We only actually had one light that you had to move from room to room, (laughs) take it in turns. But when we came to the Lord, we received the Holy Spirit and we spoke in tongues like they did in Bible days. And it was like all the lights in our whole life came on. We just lived in darkness in every conceivable way all our life. It was the most wonderful thing that you could ever imagine. We had a pump-up petrol light that sat on an Arnott's biscuit tin in the middle of the kitchen table. And because Janet came to the Lord first, and it was the school holiday, she was a, a teacher, she got the Bible out every night and she talked to us. And to me it was so exciting. Somebody bought me a kid's Bible storybook and um, I was only nine and a half and I read it. I was a prolific reader. I still am a bit like that. I like to read. But anyway, she had given me this and I read it right through. So even though I was only nine and a half and I was going to meetings then and listening to the King James Bible, I knew all the characters. You said before when we we were off mic about how you realised that you needed the Holy Spirit because you were a sinner. How do you think you're a sinner at 10 years old? What what, what brought you to that realisation? It was, I think we know ourselves like nobody else does, even though they think they know you. And I know what was in my head when I was even young and they were not good things. And I knew I was a sinner. I knew that I wasn't going to make it if Jesus came back. In fact, I was terrified that uh, he would come back before I received the Holy Spirit and got baptised. And uh, we used to have meetings in those days in the Connewarri Hall and uh, I got down on my knees behind the piano and I received the Holy Spirit. And I spoke very fluently in a language I had never learned and uh, and I've never been good at languages. I even failed French in high school. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very exciting. Yeah. And, and it, so you got baptised. I got not... baptised mm-hmm. by full immersion, yes. And do you know, it was in an old tank they used to bring in and one of the local farmers, Charlie Chalice, had come to the Lord and he had a, a truck and he used to bring 
the hot water for the baptism tank in 10-gallon milk cans on the back of his truck. And he would bring them in and you'd see the, the steam rising. It was really interesting. And um, there were 10 people baptised the night I was. Wow. Yeah, we saw a great revival around the farming community, around Bowen Heads, Ocean Grove, Connawarri in those days. Yeah, wow. I mean, farmers are generally relatively conservative people. Mm. Why do you think there was such a revival at that point in time amongst the farming community? Was it the testimony of others who had received the Holy Spirit and you know, whose lives had been changed? Or did that have a big impact on others? I really think it was the testimony of the lady who, who witnessed to my father initially when he went to borrow that horse and plough. And, and her words were, I've received the Holy Spirit, Mac. I speak in tongues and I've been healed of my asthma. And she spoke to a lot of people. They were well known. They were quite well-to-do people. And uh, I think, and some of, uh, no, I would say a lot of these people were relatives of theirs mm. that came to the Lord. Mm. Yes. So when did you meet uh, Pastor Jock? Well, he wasn't a pastor then. <laughs> Now, in 1961, I came on the bus from Geelong with my friend, the daughter of the lady who witnessed to us. This lady's name, well, this girl's name was Wendy. And uh, we stayed with Pastor John and Janet and they had a house meeting there. And at the end of this house meeting, I noticed Jock was sitting on the other side of the room on a bench and my friend actually elbowed me and she said, why don't you go and move that? concordance that's on beside Jock and go and sit next to him. And I said, oh, no, <laughs> I'm not that forward. <laughs> <laughs> and had you noticed? I had definitely noticed Helen, but I'd noticed her prior to that because um, I did have a girlfriend, I must confess. It's a girl that I grew up with in Port Lincoln and she'd come to the Lord uh, a little bit for a while in Adelaide. But that didn't go anywhere. And um, and Helen's elder sister, one of them, Lorraine, came to me one day and she showed me a photograph of Helen. And uh, she said, uh, what do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, it's very nice. That's just that's just social media back you know, 50, 50 years ago, really, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, she said she's very popular with the boys. She's... Got, she's had boyfriends or something like that. And I thought, well, let, why show me the photograph? She's already got a boyfriend. But, but that's telling so that, tales out of school. Yeah. <laughs> so that was sort of already there. And when Helen came to Adelaide with Wendy and the two girls on that night, first night we ever met, I was sitting on the other side of the, the room, as Helen explained. It was Helen that I was attracted to. And in my heart, I thought, that's the girl for me. And I very shy. I never ever would have said anything like that to anybody. And so um, you're about nineteen. I was nineteen yep. at the time. But I might just go back a little bit because I'm going to bring Port Lincoln into it about now. Uh, I was brought up in Adelaide, and then in 1949, my dad got a transfer to Port Lincoln as a meat inspector, and I ended up going right through primary school pretty well in Port Lincoln uh, from 1949 to 1956. And uh, while we were there, like Helen, we were sent to Sunday school. The Anglican mission, again, like Helen's family, mum and dad didn't go, just send the kids off. 
Uh, I think it was sort of a double thought there. One was that we needed religious instruction. The other one was for them to have a break from us, you know. <laughs> That's how it was. It is, a, it is an interesting concept, isn't it, to send the kids off to yeah. and not do that yourself, not exactly. be an example for yourself. I, I always wonder what parents are expecting to get out of that. I think my mother hoped that we would find something yeah. where she hadn't yeah, okay. in the church. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. I think also they classed it as a thing of education. So you sent the kids off to school and you didn't go with them to school. So you send them off to Sunday school yeah, and you don't go with them to that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. It's fairly yeah. common. But I never got anything out of that. My brother and I, the older brother Ben, we sort of really messed around a lot and got kicked out of the class and it really, we got nothing out of it at all, all the time I was in Port Lincoln. But when I came back to Adelaide, I started high school in 1957, just at a boys' technical college, pretty rough sort of a school. But I don't know why, I was very keen to go to high school and anything to do with high school meant a lot to me at that time and I went along to religious instruction which they used to have in those days go for one lesson once a week usually an Anglican minister or whatever religion you were would come in in my case it was an Anglican minister and uh, I never ever listened when I was in Port Lincoln as a kid Uh, I was still a kid but I was a bit older and I um, realized that uh, I must have been wanting to do the right things, the only thing I can say. Because the minister said, how many of you go to church? And out of a class of about 40 Anglican boys, only about three put their hand up. I wasn't one of them. How many of you own a Bible? Again, maybe only about three put their hand up. And the elderly Anglican minister said, you should go to church. Didn't give any reason. (laughs) And And if you want to buy a Bible, you can buy one through me and it's six shillings. And which was quite a bit of money in those days. I, I had a six shilling Bible too. I wonder what that would be worth today. Well, that was when Dad would have got fifteen pounds a week as a salary, and six shillings was maybe a third of a pound, twenty shillings in a pound. Be quite a few dollars. So um, anyhow, Dad gave me the six shillings, and I I bought the Bible. That was when you could go to the pictures. I'll digress for a second. You go on a Saturday afternoon to go what we called the flicks. And all you had was a shilling. And with that shilling, you could get sixpence to get your ticket, threepence for a, a violent crumble bar, and a threepence for a, maybe some chips. And you could do it all in one shilling. Okay, so today it would cost you probably $30 or maybe a little bit more to do all of that. right? To, to get... go to the flicks and all that, yeah. Right. And so... Thirty. If you take that and times yeah, that by, by six, six, right? That's one hundred and eighty dollars for the Bible, roughly. So really, to ask Dad for that mm. amount of money was a lot. Yeah, I bet. And he gave it to me, and I religiously took that little Bible with me to religious instruction. But he never ever read from it. But I did start going to church, and our fellowship these days is centred in the Vogue Theatre in Kingswood, and the church that I went to is just up the road from there, somebody's house these days called St. Wilfred's uh, Anglican Church. And I went there for a whole year, but I never learned anything. I never got anything. And at the end of the year, I don't even remember deliberately stopping going. I just faded away. Just nothing there for me. I was, um, I won't go through it, nothing there. And then the next coming towards me coming to the Lord, um, we were living near the Vogue Theatre at the time. I was going to this boys' school that I've mentioned. And I had a friend, a best friend really, who was a Lutheran. His name was Freddie Peters. He was a German, 
His dad actually had fought on the Eastern Front for for Germany and survived, which is not many did. Mm. And they had immigrated to Australia. Parents' English was pretty well non-existent, but Freddie, being a child, learned English very quickly, and he and I became very close. And I knew that he was a Lutheran. He talked about that quite a bit and how that he studied the catechism to get confirmed. And that went on for about two years for him. And I don't know why either of us never recognised the fact of what a hypocrite one could be. I never ever accused him of being a hypocrite. But he was no better than I was, and we both swore like troopers and talked about things that maybe teenage boys talk about and they shouldn't. And that was just the way we were. So we were not very good. We weren't very bad either. Both of us were very keen on study. And I'll jump ahead for two years later. In 1959, uh, he one day said to me, would you like to come to the Billy Graham crusade with me tonight? And, of course, I didn't even know who Billy Graham was. And I said, well, who is Billy Graham? And he said, he's an American evangelist. He's touring Australia. He's been in Adelaide for over a week, and he's admitted that he'd gone to every night, but he left it until the last night to invite his best friend. He must have thought I would knock him back, but I didn't. And I went home that night, and I said to Mum and Dad, I'm going to the Billy Graham crusade in the Adelaide showgrounds. And, uh, and Dad said, I'll come with you. Now, Dad had gone off now and again to Easter. And why, why Easter, I don't know. Never said anything to us. He'd just go off. Maybe felt he was looking for them. I don't know. It wasn't sort of like some people, you just do it at Easter and Christmas. But he, he said there was a little bit there. There was some glimmer of wanting to know. He... Uh, said he'd go with me. We went to this crusade, about 34,000 people packed into the Adelaide showgrounds. Again, I won't go through every detail, but right at the end of it, Billy Graham invited people to come out. A very good orator, but as I learnt later on, cut us short, uh, short-changed this on the truth. He did talk about repentance, but maybe didn't even talk about that properly because he sent us back to our old church, and that was part of my repentance, was leaving the old church, you know, so, uh, but that started an interest to. So, what was it that he was? From what I've heard, and you know, I've seen some YouTube clips, etc. He, he was quite a passionate, you know, guy. Billy Graham. Uh, yeah. Well, I would go on to say that Billy Graham most probably would have to be one of the greatest orators I've ever heard, and he drew massive crowds throughout the world, particularly the Western world, America, England, Australia, and New Zealand, and so on, and uh, draw drew you know hundred thousand at a time, huge crowds to come and listen. And the Baptist church that promoted him recognised in him this great orator. But he had to preach a watered-down doctrine to try and please everybody. When he came to Australia, the Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church said, if you preach full immersion baptism, we will not support you. So he said, I won't preach it which, of course, later on I came to realise the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter would never have agreed to. No. But so when he gave his sermon, it was always very the very basics, but it was still far better than the Anglican Church, which really I got nothing out of at all. So I was very influenced by this great orator on this particular night, and he sent us back to the Anglican Church, but we really didn't want to go back to the Anglican Church. And a lady up the road, and my mum was leaning on the front fence a couple of days later. And we'd been listening to Billy Graham on the radio. He was on the radio every night on what was called the Hour of Decision, which always confused me because it only went for half an hour. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but anyhow, it was called the hour of decision. And so, what, what was that about? Was that, was that, that was him preaching every night, yeah, right. and, and various parts of his sermons around the world were all recorded, and they played those recordings. Maybe made just for radio. I don't yep. know. By the way, TV had only just come in. Nobody had really TV much in uh, nineteen um, what year? Nineteen fifty nine. Only been here a couple of years, so it was all radio. Yeah. So uh, we went um, a bit like this, really. Very much this like is, this. this. It's back to the future. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so you had to use your imagination. I'm sure everybody listening to this think I'm about 40 years old, a lot of hair, very handsome. Well, you'd be wrong if you thought that. Well, well, I better get back 40. to what I'm talking you're about. You're not though. 40. You don't have a lot of hair. <laughs> oh, you're still pretty handsome. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that one in there. So um, we started going, I won't go to all of that. The lady up the road invited us to go to the Baptist church down in Unley Park. Uh, not knowing at the time that she was a lady that was a bit of a social climber and we went past about two other Baptist churches Mm. but they were in poor suburbs but only Park is one of Adelaide's top suburbs and most of the people go there are doctors and lawyers and so on and um, to this lady, Mrs Stevens, that meant a lot to her. It didn't mean anything to us. And later on, I think it might have even been part of the reason we were had no great feeling in leaving there because we never really fitted in. We were working class, as was Mrs. Stevens. Even though people were polite to us in the six months we were there, it never came together. Uh, one night there was an evangelist came, a Baptist evangelist within the Australian Baptist church system, and he was a better preacher than the local reverend, the Reverend Tinsley, which wasn't difficult. And he gave an altar call and asked us to come out the front of the Baptist church. We'd been going for a few months by this time. And to, the words they used was, and Billy Graham words, make a decision for Christ. So mum and dad, my younger brother Mark and myself went out the front and we made a decision for Christ. We were then split up and taken out to the back Sunday school room to be counselled. Various Baptist members, big church it was, maybe around 500 people, had volunteered to counsel us sinners as we were coming to the Lord. And we went out the back and I had an elderly man, maybe about my age now, and I was only a kid. And uh, I remember I was very nervous, of course. And uh, we sat opposite each other, quite close. And he reached forth and he grabbed hold of my hands. He looked me in the eyes and he said, would you like to say a prayer? I remember thinking... Hang on a second, you're you're the guy running this. I, I didn't I didn't realise I was going to say a prayer, but anyhow, I mumbled out some sort of prayer, and the moment I finished, he shook my hands vigorously and said, "You are now gloriously saved." And I remember I had this great feeling of disappointment mm. because of all the months that, from Billy Graham onwards, and the build up to this moment, and nothing happened, and I didn't want to admit that because then you think it's you, you're the problem, yeah. not what's been said. So as we walked around the side of the church to go back through the front door from the Sunday school out the back, I asked Mr. Stephen's son, who's the lad I'd sort of got a bit close to, uh, what are they getting baptised? I mean, it's a Baptist church. And now this was only his opinion, so I can't quote it for the whole Baptist church, but he said, when you've been in the church a couple of years and you've proved your loyalty to the church, that's usually when people get baptised. And in the six months we were there, they had one particular Sunday where they saved up a great stack of baptism. didn't mean much to them, wasn't part of salvation in their opinion. So that never happened. Meanwhile, back in Port Langan is Barnard and Arns, the Dutch family that we had contact and become friends with. All I say is that they got converted in 1959 and Byron came to Adelaide to stay with us. He was a builder 
and he came to Adelaide often to buy building material. Whenever he came to Adelaide, he stayed with us, had done for two or three years while we were back in Adelaide. And I always loved this guy, all us boys did. He really related well to lads. And uh, when I saw him this particular day, uh, when he turned up at our house, I was first thought was Byron's here. Oh, really, I really like that guy. I was still at high school, came home on my treadley, and um, towards the end of 1959, Billy Graham convert, Baptist, told that I was gloriously saved person. And when he turned up at our house on that, that day, about 10 o'clock in the morning, he thought, I'm going to be with the Duncans for a couple of days. I'll see if I can get an opportunity to talk to them about my new experience. He'd only been saved about three months. And the two families had never talked about God ever. So it was a new experience to talk about it. Mm. But within seconds of him coming into our kitchen, my mother started to preach to him about Billy Graham and about the Baptist church. And he let him, my mother was a good talker. I don't know where I get that from. Uh, but she, when he got a break, he said to her after a while, he said, have you ever heard of speaking in tongues? And my mother said, no. Six hours later, at four o'clock in the afternoon, I ride down the driveway on my push bike and Byron is at the front door talking to my mother or actually trying to get away from my mother to go and buy his building material. And as I came up, I sensed something was different. It was just sort of there. And you don't know quite what it is at the time. Obviously, the Lord was there or something. And I, as I said, I was fairly shy. I never said a word other than, hello, Byron. And mum said to him, no, mum said to me first up, guess what? I have found a new religion. And I remember going through my mind, what do you mean a new religion? We are Baptists. We are born again Billy Graham converts. That sort of went, what do you mean a new religion? And then she turned to Byron and said, before you go, you must show him that scripture. So we trooped into the kitchen. Byron sat at the table and in front of him was my Bible. And he opened it up to Mark chapter 16. I stood behind him overlooking his shoulder. He pointed to Mark 16. Now, the first thing I noticed is that somebody had desecrated my Bible. It all from, from verse 15 to verse 20, somebody had underlined it roughly by Anne. And to me at that time, you didn't ever do anything like that to the Bible. But it was, he had done it so that my mother could find it later on. So I read Mark 16, and as I read it, I had what you maybe call a touch from the Lord. I didn't know what it was. It was sort of like pins and needles went right through me. And I think, I remember thinking, whoa, what was that? At the end of it, he basically just said, what do you think? I came in, what I answered. I know what I thought. I thought, whatever that's talking about, I haven't got it and I'm not saved. So I just jumped through to the next day. I talked to Freddie next day, the Freddie who invited me to the Billy Graham crusade. He was horrified about speaking in tongues. All the churches were. To them, it was a, an act of the devil. When you spoke in tongues, it was the devil. And the churches, hard to imagine that now. And, what, and so, yeah, when you show, I mean, I assume you showed Freddie Mark 16. Uh, how did he reconcile, you know, that those signs would follow believers with? Everybody said it happened 2,000 years ago. Yeah, right. And all the signs and wonders and miracles no longer happened. That's mm. what everybody believed. Mm. So you don't know whether you talk to a Baptist or Anglican. I mean, as we know today, they don't. many of them don't see it that way. But in 1959, they did. And they, the only people who spoke in tongues were Pentecostal people, and they were very few in number. So Adelaide might have two or 3,000 maximum, you know, throughout Adelaide that were spirit-filled. It's hard to imagine how small it was. 
There was just mainly three or four churches, IOG, Assemblies of God, of course, Christian Revival Crusade and the Apostolic Church. They were the three Pentecostal churches, a few others, not many, and later on us. But uh, so anyhow, I um, talked to Freddie next day. I cannot remember any of our conversation. All I know is he came to our place. We often went to each other's homes, like you do in your best friends. He came to my place the very next day. And um, I haven't really finished with the, what happened after that. So Byron, go back to the first day. Byron went off to, to do buy his building material. And shortly after my father arrived home on his old, for those who know motorbikes, his old Velocet motorcycle, put put that down the driveway into the shed and had a little back door that came into the shed as well. My mother shot out the back door through the little side door and as Dad was getting off his motorbike, my mother said to him, Gordon, Gordon, guess what? You're going to get healed of your angina heart problem. Now, my father had no idea what she was talking about, <laughs> and with that, he ended up with an angina heart attack. Right there and then. Right then and there. Not seriously, but he's leaning against the wall, hanging onto his chest, while mum's saying that he's going to get healed, because Byron had talked about divine healing. Guess what? Later on, he did. Got totally healed. And when he died, it was not from a heart attack. So that was that day. The next day, I come home from school with Freddie on our push bikes, drive down the drive, and as we come into the lounge room, there's a guy that you and I talked about a little while ago, a guy called Peter Mullen. I'd never met him before. He's a guy in his early 40s. He was sitting in the lounge room. Byron was in the kitchen talking to Mum, and he had actually brought Peter to our place, and he was on his way through to Port Lincoln, but he pulled him up at our place on that day. Sitting over in the corner with a big Bible, that's one thing I noticed about the revival people, they all had big Bibles, and he had this big Bible on his lap, and he was reading it. I've never seen anybody do that, only ever at church. And he's sitting in the corner reading his Bible, and these two teenage boys walk in, and I cannot remember how it got to it. We ended up in a debate with Peter Mullen, and um, I remember Freddie being a good Lutheran and quoting and having the catechism, he started quoting the catechism to prove that you could be sprinkled as a baby to be baptised as opposed to being immersed as an adult. And he went on quoting the catechism, saying... "Well, So for those that don't know what the catechism is, what, what is the catechism? A lot of those Orthodox churches had it, Catholic, Anglican. And what it was, it was a series of sort of beliefs and some scriptures on the main beliefs of that particular church. I mean, if it was the Catholic uh, catechism, it would mention the worship of Mary and, and all of relics and all their beliefs, and it would have a few scriptures as well. Well, with the Lutheran, it might not have what I said, but it would still have some of the old Catholic teachings from when they broke from the Catholic church. So sort of part Bible, part church belief. So he was quoting, obviously in that, it said you could be christened. And as a baby, and that would be equal to being baptised. So even, even though that's not what the original scriptures talk no, about. No, that's mm. right. So that's what Peter Mullen said to him. Mm. He said, look, young man, I don't want to be offensive, but I'm not really interested in what the catechism says. I'm only interested in what the Bible says. And as he said that, I thought, I agree with that. Uh, Freddie's my best friend. I've never met this guy before in my life, but I agree with what he said. I didn't say anything, by the way. So after a while, Freddie, in absolute frustration that Peter wouldn't let him quote from the catechism, he suddenly said, but Martin Luther wrote the catechism. And then Peter Mullen said, look, young man, I don't want to be offensive. 
I don't care who wrote the catechism. God wrote the Bible. And again, I remember thinking, I agree with that too. So that went on for a little bit more and Freddie went home. I remember as we got to the front gate, he was a fairly confident young man. He said, I showed him, didn't I? And I'm thinking, no, you never did. I didn't say it. I never did. You never did. And then later that night, Mrs. Stevens came. Now, we'd been sitting around the lunch lounge room, mum and dad, myself, I'm the middle son, my older brother Ben and my younger brother Mark, five of us, Peter Mullen and Byron Kabuta, the old Dutch friend. And we're all just talking generally about things and very excited. I was thinking when you were asking Helen about what the difference was, one word that came to mind, there was excitement. You know, there was no excitement in the Anglican church, you know. So, and Mrs. Stevens came in who, she counted us as her convert because she took us to the Baptist church. So she came in to rescue her converts. So she starts very, she, I always remember it was like a, a galleon in battle, all guns blazing, all the, the two ships up. pull up a exactly. long side each other. So she came storming in like this <laughs> as Nelson or somebody, and um, Spanish Armada in this case, and, um, and with her two children, the boy that I asked about baptism and a daughter as well, and she immediately um, starts attacking anything to do with miracles. And really the churches in those, none of them believed in present-day miracles. What happened 2,000 years ago? Great. What's going to happen in heaven? Great. But nothing right now. And uh, so one of her main arguments was Paul's thorn in the flesh. But before that, every time she said something, she'd say something like, in the Bible somewhere it says. Whenever she said that, Peter Mullen would say, well, why don't we have a look at that? And he knew exactly where it was. And the one I particularly remember was Paul's thorn in the flesh in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and chapter 12. And when she started saying somewhere in the Bible, and what about Paul's thorn in the flesh? He obviously was sick. So obviously there was no divine healing. How you could ever say there was no divine healing in the life of the Apostle Paul, I have no idea. But we didn't know any of this, of course. And Peter Mullen immediately said, well, let's turn to it. So he turns to Second Corinthians chapter 12, and as he goes through the story, it's all pretty simple. All the persecutions mentioned in chapter 11 and how that never mentioned sickness at all and how that these infirmities or weakness only explained it beautifully. And I remember for our family who never said anything that night, it was like watching tennis. We'd look at Mr. Stevens, then we'd look at Peter Mullen, then we'd look back at Mr. Stevens, and we were just, we were just observers of it. I reckon at the end of that night, we totally believed in a God of miracles and signs and wonders. But like a lot of people, it was a, one thing to believe it and another thing to do anything about it. Mm. So what happened next? So what happened next was we're still in the Baptist church. We haven't really fully left it. And um, Freddie's in my ear almost every day at school. I remember he used to say to me, it's all mass hysteria. He had no idea what that meant. It's all auto-suggestion. He had no idea what they meant. Neither did I, by the way. They were things the adults had said. And you get all hyped up and you don't really speak in tongues. And So he was really trying to do everything to stop me. I can't remember Mr. Stevens from that point on. Maybe she was too. And, um, and then really I go to the main events. I remember coming home from the beach early January. So I jumped a couple of months, still in the Baptist church, got involved in a great big choir they had at Christmas time where they put a big a scaffolding over the pulpit and all us young people stood up there in white shirts and black pants and 
and we sung hymns, you know. So I was still in it at Christmas, early January, one very hot day. I remember coming home with my two cousins who were very worldly, Anglicans, but very worldly, and girls they were. And um, as we came into the lounge room, all in our togs and towels around our neck, and, and that Peter Mullen, another guy who I won't go through his testimony, but his name was uh, Leo Hendricks, was sitting in the corner, well-dressed with their Bibles. And I remember I had a choice. Will I go, I knew them, or will I go with my world? I went with my worldly cousins. And so there was sort of like there was a divide in the room. So that's where I was at until mum and dad, even though I might have been the initial one who showed the interest, mum and dad had sort of really taken over by this time and they really were looking at it big time. And um, mum said to me on this day, January the 15th, 1960, it was a Friday and a Friday night in particular, very hot day, 40-plus day, and mum said, why don't you stay tonight and talk to a converted Methodist minister? And to me, being a bit religious and all that, and thinking, well, that sounds a bit more civilised. Mum had got it wrong. He wasn't a Methodist minister. He was a lay preacher. Uh, I don't even know if I knew the difference. Maybe she didn't either. And there was this Pastor John Corman. He was, yeah, he was a pastor just at that time in Port Lincoln. So I thought, all right, that sounds a bit better. So we sat out on the front veranda, no air conditioning in those days, outside on the front veranda in Lower Mitcham where we lived. And of all people that were there that night was this lady, Joyce McFarland, who had been the connection with Byron and Arns Kabuta back in the Netherlands and had sponsored them out to Australia about 1952. So she was there that night, my mother's cousin and my grandmother and my step-grandfather and they just mocked Pastor John, who was only 22, although whenever I say that, I always add he was never, ever just 22. He was always <laughs> at least 45. But here's this young man, and he stood his ground brilliantly, and I just realised we didn't say much that night, mainly my relatives attacking a lot younger man, and he did very well. And around midnight, fortunately, they all went home. By the way, none of my relatives ever came to the Lord. And we're always horrified at what we'd done. And um, But we knew we'd found the truth. So around midnight, Pastor John says to my mother, um, he worked out that my mum was the main spokesperson of the family. He turned to my mother and he said, oh, I never heard that saying up until then. He said to my mother, why are you poking at this with a stick? Why don't you get baptised? And my mother said, all right, I'll get baptised. Turned to my father, he said, Gordon, what about you? And my dad said, yeah, I'll get baptised. He turned to me, he was sitting on a sort of a wall near the veranda. He reckons I nearly fell off. I don't think that's true. <laughs> that's his story. And he said, what about you, Jock? And I said, yes, I'll get baptised. I'd wanted to, actually. Mm. So he immediately said, let's run the bath. And it's about one o'clock by this time. We talked a bit about it. And my mother said straight away, no, I'm not going to get baptised in a common bath. She was had gone to ladies' college, a wilderness college in Adelaide. She'd been, her father had been wealthy. No way was she going to get baptised in just a bath. I don't know what I really thought about it, but in some ways I was quite glad the way it worked out. We got baptised the next day down at Brighton Beach. Uh, I remember sitting on the beach with by that time, Peter Mullen was there. John Corman, of course, had been there the night before. He was there. Some of the, just some new Dutch converts. Maybe Byron had flown and Byron was there. I don't remember how they all gathered Saturday afternoon. 
I remember sitting on the bed, very hot day again, on the beach, and Peter Mullen sitting with me going through uh, Romans chapter 6 and going how we were buried with Christ in baptism and, and planted in his likeness and going went through that. still remember that vividly. And I remember I was, as a kid, I was still only a teenager and my hands were shaking a bit and I was quite nervous, but I do remember that going through what he said. We'd go out into the water and it was one day when the Gulf water was like a mill pond. There was not a, not a ripple on it. It was like glass. And the, the beach was full of people and the few saints and brethren stood in a little circle for us to get baptised in the middle of the little circle with the water up in to the water, the, yeah. a water up to their thighs sort of thing. And Peter Mullen, and they decided I should be first, go into the middle. The trouble is that other people thought there was something that happened. So the next one, a quarter of unbelievers came around the outside, something we ought to do more often. And that even made it more difficult for me, all these people watching me getting baptised. And uh, went down. I'd never been to a meeting, by the way. None of us had. So we got to this point without ever going to a meeting, just witnessed to from the Word of God and went through the baptism ceremony. And I remember as I came up out of the water, I heard a thing called a chorus. I'd never, I'd only ever had the old hymns in the Baptist church and the Anglican church. And they sang a chorus, which we know very well, follow, follow, I will follow Jesus. Anywhere, everywhere, I will follow on. And they sang that chorus. And I mustn't have had really the right attitude. I was embarrassed. All these people looking at me and we're singing, I felt like going under the water and Again. disappearing. <laughs> Mum and Dad, don't remember because you only think about yourself. Mum and Dad obviously got baptised. And that night we finally went to a meeting in one of the Dutch people's home, really more like a seeker's meeting for the Holy Spirit. And we all got down, a lot of noise, people speaking, some receiving, and none of us did. So no, none of you received no, the Holy Spirit that night? Myself, hmm. I mean, my, my younger brother was about 11 at the time. Hmm. He didn't either. My older brother, Ben, was in the Air Force in a way. At the, he wasn't interested at the time. And I then went into a seven weeks sort of no man's land. I knew the Baptist church, Billy Graham, weren't preaching. I'm not saying they preached the false doctrine. They just didn't preach the, the full doctrine. gospel. Hmm. They didn't emphasised the whole lot and left bits out. So I knew the Baptist church and Billy Graham wasn't really preaching the full gospel, as we call it. So I stopped going to the Baptist church, but I didn't really join the new fellowship. Then the next big event, just before I get to when I did finally come to the Lord, uh, was that my dad received the Holy Spirit. And he was the shy one of the family. Freddie saying, you know, it was all mass hysteria and all that. Dad was on his own in his little Ford Prefect car. He was a meat inspector. He was down at Outer Harbour, as we called it here in Adelaide, inspecting meat onto a freezer boat to go to Europe back in the days when the Commonwealth was the Commonwealth. And uh, in his lunch hour, he went back to his little Ford Prefect and he received the Holy Spirit. And that had an impact on me. I can't remember exactly when that was, in that seven weeks. And then finally I'll get to the day I came to the Lord we're talking about miracles here. This was the big, the big miracle for me that day. And because uh, I was in the doldrums a bit and didn't really know where I was going or what I was going to do, and mum and dad, fortunately, had now really started to attend a few meetings uh, regularly. Uh, mum came in two or three times through the day, and I stayed in bed, which I never did. Usually on a Saturday morning, I'd get up at the crack of dawn and I'd play sport, summertime, tennis, uh, swimming, and cricket and winter be Aussie rules football and follow Aussie rules in the afternoon with the league teams and so on. That was my life. That was my Saturday. 
But on this, on the changeover of seasons almost, I just stayed in bed and read a book. And Mum came in two or three times and said, um, why did you come to the meeting tonight? And, oh, no, don't think I want to. No, typical teenager, giving Mum a bit of a hard time. And Dad potted around like guys do in the back of the shed and you could hear through the little door to my bedroom, which had louvered windows, the, was the back veranda closed in. You could hear me giving uh, my mother a bit of a hard time. Now, when we were kids, mum did most of the discipline back in the days when you hit children. And by the way, I never regretted any of the hits I ever got. I needed every one I got and lots that I should have got. And uh, mum was the main disciplinarian. Never hit us around the head but on the back of the calf or maybe on the backside. So I was stung a bit. That was about all. And But whenever Dad disciplined us, which was fairly rare, he would sort of half kill you. He'd sort of lose it completely, take his belt off, and he'd lay into you with the belt. So, But he hadn't done that for a decade. It was only when I was a little kid and later on just a look from him was enough to don't muck around anymore. And uh, But the body language was still there when he was upset. His head used to sort of jerk a bit as he talked when he was upset. And all of a sudden he appears behind mum on this Saturday afternoon when I've already knocked her back two or three times. And um, he appears behind mum and I look up and dad, the head's going, dad's upset. I wasn't worried that he's going to hit me. I'm 17 years old by this time. But I could see he was upset. And I remember what he said. If you're an Australian, you'll know this saying. He said unto me, You're a nice sort of a coot you are. You got baptised seven weeks before. You got baptised and you've never been back. You should come tonight. And I looked at him and I said, all right, I'll come. And that night I went. I remember Peter Mullen gave the talk. It was just in somebody's house on a Saturday night and and he gave a talk on the end of the world and H-bombs and all that. But the last thing he said stuck in my mind. He said, if you want to go to hell... You don't have to do anything. You can do what you like and you'll go to hell. But if you want to go to heaven, you got to repent, you got to get baptized, you got to fill with the Holy Spirit, and you got to walk with God. And I'd done the, I think I'd done the repentance bit by that time. I'd done the water baptism bit. And that night I got down on my knees and I got mightily filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, to such a degree, I didn't want to stop. People had supper, people started to go home. And Peter Mullen sat down alongside me and said, "Young, look, young chap, uh, everybody's going home. You better stop." And I went home, really excited about. To stop you were praying, obviously. I stopped my yeah, praying eventually. Yeah, yeah. Went home. I was so excited. I had to talk to somebody about midnight. I talked to my younger brother Mark. I went to bed happily. Mark stayed up till three o'clock in the morning, and he received the Holy Spirit the same night. And later on, my brother Ben came, yeah. and that was 1960. Wow. That's only 1960, so, 60 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, sorry. Yeah, what's well, taken us 50 minutes to get to uh, <laughs> to the beginning, really? <laughs> I've had enough to say. Yeah. Well, there you have it. That's episode one. Stay tuned for more episodes with Pastor Jock and Helen. You'll find them on revivalontheairtoday.com, our website, where there's lots and lots of other episodes on all sorts of miracles and amazing life transformations. Until next time, God bless. God bless.